I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi. This is episode 395 for August 13th, 2012. Today we'll learn about the Nashville Jazz Workshop. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel for the show's logo and Rob Grundle for the Jazz or Bust logo. You can support the Jazz Session in a couple different ways. You can become a recurring member by going to thejazzsession.com slash join. And for as little as 10 bucks a month, you can keep the Jazz Session going. You can also make a one-time donation to support the tour, the Jazz or Bust tour, which starts again Labor Day weekend. You can do that at thejazzsession.com slash tour, and there's lots of thank you gifts that come along with your support. Please sign up for the mailing list at thejazzsession.com. You'll get one email a week telling you who's on the show that week and also giving you links to other things that I think you'll be interested in. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. D is in David, and uh, I tweet there pretty frequently about things jazz-related and otherwise. The Jazz or Bust tour begins again Labor Day weekend at the Detroit Jazz Festival and moves west from there. And I need lots of places to stay and people to interview and places to read poetry. So if you want to be involved in any of those aspects of the second leg of the Jazz or Bust tour, drop me a line at jason at thejazzsession.com. Thanks. This is the second of a half dozen shows that were recorded in Nashville, Tennessee. I went to Nashville during the first part of the Jazz or Bust tour, and actually right when I got there, I went to the Nashville Jazz Workshop to do a poetry reading that was set up by saxophonist Evan Cobb, who was my host for uh, most of the nights I was in Nashville. The Nashville Jazz Workshop turned out to be this really amazing place. I did not expect to find what I found there, and it seemed important to tell you more about it. So I went back to uh, talk to the folks who make it work, and we're going to hear that interview coming up right now. My guest is Roger Spencer. He's uh, a very fine bassist in his own right and also one of the co-founders of the Nashville Jazz Workshop. Thanks for being here. Glad to. I came here two days ago as part of the jam session to do a, a poetry reading, not really knowing what to expect, certainly not expecting anything when the cab dropped me off. And then uh, walking into this place and just being completely amazed by what I saw. I mean, it's a, it's a library, it's a school, it's a performance space. It just seems to be kind of an oasis for jazz in Nashville. And I guess I want to start with, with where it is. You just showed me some pictures of what it looked like. And it seems like uh, you must have been quite a visionary to look at this you know, kind of unused factory space and say, uh, we can make folks, a school here. <laughs> some folks thought we were out of our minds. <laughs> we had been affiliated with a percussion school loosely before we moved to this location, and we decided we needed to strike out on our own and start a not-for-profit corporation, and that was in 2000. So we started looking around for spaces, and a friend of ours, actually one of our students, a singer that was coming to the workshop, uh, had a wife who was in commercial real estate and knew the owners of this property. 
And they said, we've got a place you've got to look at. So they brought us over here, and we're at the end of uh, Monroe Street in the North Germantown area of Nashville. And this, this building, or group of buildings, was the Newhoff Meatpacking Plant. And it's been sitting here empty for 30 years. And just as we met the owners of the property and came over here to visit, they had begun cleaning up the property. They had to chase out a lot of homeless people. Uh, the main meat packing plant was full of all kinds of trash and meat wrappers and who knows what else. And uh, this was the motor pool. So we're in the basement of the motor pool. Upstairs is a huge garage. And down here was the tool shop for the whole complex and uh, the parts place for the motor pool we kind of didn't want to be in the dead animal part of the building <laughs> so so we migrated to this spot and then at one end of this spot under here uh, was a big room that somebody had sort of built a makeshift stage in and they had some lighting and there it was a rock and roll band from russia was rehearsing in there and uh, i'm sure some people know who they were but i can't remember their name bearing straits that was the name of the band and uh so it was kind of set up. So we saw the space, the main entryway and the big empty space out front. And then when we saw the little space in the back with the uh, stage, we said, that's that's our performance space right there. And uh, then we got a r ridiculous lease on the place because the owner wanted, you know, like a flagship arts group in here to help, you know, reestablish the property. And uh, we've been here for over 10 years now. It's amazing, and uh, we should also mention your your co-founder in this uh, experience. Give her some right, credit my wife, my wife Lori Meacham, is a great pianist. We met in Los Angeles. I had already been there almost fifteen years and was getting fed up with it. She had just moved to Los Angeles. We met up, and she disliked the place immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so we started looking around the country. We did a, a really uh, structured study of different places around the country, and there are a lot of nice places that we could have lived. Seattle, Portland, Denver, Minneapolis, Chicago, Indianapolis. Uh, I'm not big on Texas or Florida, and I don't have the energy for New York, so we kind of ruled all those out. And it came down to Nashville because of the uh, music publishing and recording scene. There are just dozens and dozens of really great musicians in the studios here doing uh, gospel, country, pop, all kinds of things, and they just happen to be great jazz musicians as well. And they were kind of, it was great to get in and start playing with them, and then we eventually realized there's this big void, there's no place to play, and Lori and I had both done some university teaching and were not real impressed with the, uh, what they call the traditional university institu institutionalized approach to teaching jazz. And I kind of came out of that. Uh, I was an R&B player first. And uh, I grew up being all about groove as a bass player. You know, my first heroes were like, you know, Jerry Jamat and Louis Johnson and uh, uh, Chuck Rainey and those guys. And then I got into music school at Indiana and started studying jazz. And uh, that's when this whole thing opened up to me. So... I studied, you know, at Indiana in a structured thing, but it became really apparent after a few years on the professional scene that what I learned at Indiana was how much I didn't know about playing jazz. And I really learned by being on the bandstand with people who really know what they're doing and being yelled at for playing, you know, stupid notes or bad chord changes or not knowing the forms of the tunes. 
So when it came time to do some teaching, um, Lori had some students at Belmont who wanted her to coach them as a rhythm section. Belmont's a university here in Nashville. Right. And it's a good music school. But Lori and I are traditionalists, and we felt that getting away from us because the, the folks at Belmont were a lot younger, <laughs> and they uh, they really wanted – they're more about Music Row. It's a great school for session players and Music Row production and music law and all that kind of stuff. But we as traditionalists are based in probably mainstream jazz from early 40s to mid-70s and the, Ameri- the great American songbook. And nobody at Belmont seemed to be interested in learning Ella Fitzgerald. They wanted to learn Trisha Yearwood and Jewel, <laughs> which is cool, but that's just not what we were about. So this little rhythm section she was working at wanted her to coach them on the side as a jazz and standards kind of rhythm section. So uh, once a week, you know, they'd go to her office on lunch hours and just play tunes and talk about tunes. Well, the end of the school year came. And uh, she didn't have an office during the summer. So they asked if they could come to the house. Well, we lived 35 miles outside town at the time in a log cabin. <laughs> and they were fine with it. They wanted to drive all the way out there to do this. And the fact that they were willing to do that gave us a little idea. Well, there may be something here. So we talked to uh, some friends of ours who had the percussion school. And we sort of sublet some space with them. Started teaching jazz with a couple of classes a week. And it just snowballed. People came out of the woodwork wanting to study and play. And the advantage of our approach is it's what we call journeyman apprentice, you know. Get on the stage with me and play with me, and I'll show you what I know from playing with great players. And um, it's not a degree program, so you don't have to commit to a four-year degree. You don't have to audition to get in. Uh, you don't have to fulfill any certain requirements to get a degree and get out. You can take a class and disappear and come back in a year and take another class, pick and choose. Ooh, Chester Thompson's teaching something. I've always wanted to study with Chester. I'll take that class, that kind of thing. And this has just done really well. We just let it be what it needs to be and slowly grow into probably about 120 students every six weeks. And we do seven six-week sessions a year, probably 18 to 22 two-hour classes a week. That's Mondays through Thursdays. And then when we built the place, we intentionally put a performance hall here because I'm a huge believer in, at the end of every six weeks, the ensemble need to get on the stage and play for the public. It's a different dynamic. It's a different energy, a completely different mindset than just sitting in the classroom. As I like to tell, tell the kids, uh, you, you get a chance to make all new mistakes. <laughs> different pressure. <laughs> So then our our teachers and some of the local pros here in town saw that performance space that we call the Jazz Cave, and they said, this this is the best room in town. Why why are we not playing live jazz here? And we said, yeah, you got a point. (laughs) So let's do it. So we started the Snap-on 2 and 4 series with live jazz, you know, local professionals every second and fourth Friday, and uh, some name individuals as we can get them on their way through. You know, we can't, we don't have the budget to fly whole bands here and put them up in hotels, but, and a lot of old friends. You know, I was in college with a bunch of great players like, you know, Peter Erskine, Alan Pasqua, uh, Jeff Hamilton, John Clayton. You know, those guys are in the vicinity. They know they can call and they got a gig. Um, 
Tamir Handelman, the Jeff Hamilton pianist, came mm -hmm. through and hired me and Marcus Finney to play some things around this area with him. One of my best friends out in L.A. was Pete Chris Lieb, great tenor player. We've had him here playing with us. Andy Martin's been here, that kind of thing. So tell me about who the students are who come to the school. All over the map. It's, it's an amazing bunch of folks. Uh, we try to cover the entire spectrum from non-players to professionals and anything in between. So we have lis listening classes and history classes, you know, where we watch videos and talk about the music we're listening to for non-players. Um, and then we have introductory level ensembles. What we don't do is we don't teach private lessons and we don't teach beginner private lessons, you know, like, you know, third finger, second valve, right. put your lips like this. You have to be able to play the instrument a bit to come in here. But once you can play the instrument and get around the instrument a little bit, we can help you learn how to play the music that is jazz. So we have introductory level ensembles, we have intermediate level ensembles, and we have high-end pro-level ensembles. For instance, uh, we just finished uh, a couple of six-week sessions where we did uh, Dennis Soley, a great saxophone player here in town, wrote uh, 10 or 11 five-horn charts on Charles Mingus tunes. I just mentioned that I interviewed Dennis yesterday morning, so right around the time folks are hearing this interview with you, they'll probably be also hearing the interview with Dennis, so they should oh, check that cool. out. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's a marvelous musician, a player, writer, everything. And he led this class, and when we do something of that caliber, uh, let's see, that'd be three rhythm and five horns, an eight-piece band, two or three of those players are going to be top local pros who come in and sign up for the class because they want to play that music. Where else are you going to do that? And then there are some uh, hobbyists in the band, you know, guys who are like doctors or lawyers or airline pilots on the side, and they get to stand on that stage and play the music of Charles Mingus with these professionals. So that's what I mean about the journeyman apprentice model. I want to just bust in on you for one second and say that one of the most fascinating parts of that to me, there's been a, there was a, a pretty well-read uh article recently that appeared on NPR's jazz website about how it is effectively impossible to educate new audiences about jazz, and there was a lot of controversy about it, as there is about everything that appears in the blogosphere these days. But it sounds like what you're doing is, uh, with the with the non-player classes, is almost exactly what, at least in some respects, the music needs, which is to give people who aren't actually going to perform the music a chance to come in and feel like they can get past that kind of barrier that a lot of jazz musicians set up around the music where, you know, there's so much you have to learn that you can't appreciate the music until you've been to college. And it sounds like you're really trying to find a way through that and just bring regular folks in to appreciate the music. Absolutely. We want to make it accessible and we want to demystify the playing of it. I, I've, I've been involved with teachers in, you know, some college programs that I've you know been asked to come in and help with or do a clinic or something, and sometimes you know there's this attitude of you know from the faculty that you know I've got something you'll never have, you know I'm special and you you won't ever get it. And that that's just not that's sick. Dave Baker never taught that way. Dave was like, you can do this. I one of my favorite statements he used to say was, uh, there's a lot about this music that can be learned but it can't be taught. So there's a way to expose people to this and uh, make it not so dangerous and threatening. And I believe one of the ways is to, you know, mainstream, straight ahead, swing and jazz. And every once in a while, you know, we have a contemporary series one Sunday a month. We put the edgier stuff there 
or you know we'll have a soloist in an ensemble you know like nobody's edgier than Jeff Coffin <laughs> and if we're up there playing standards his approach to standards you know people will go wow that's different I didn't know you could do that <laughs> in fact one of the contemporary series things uh, we did I put together and I played bass and a pianist named Bill Altvader and a drummer named Dale Armstrong played and these guys are amazing musicians that actually fly under the radar of the music business here uh, People know about them, but they don't hear them much because they, they just don't go out and do commercial gigs and that kind of thing. Dale is probably the closest thing to Elvin Jones that this town has. And Bill is like, his mind is just absolute freedom. He can go anywhere at any time on any tune. Whatever he hears, he just goes with it. So I put the band with Jeff Coffin together. And the only rule was we were going to play standard tunes, no arrangements, no paper start playing the song and see what happens and it just it was really cool that's adventurous that's dangerous you know uh i i kind of interrupted you in talking about the classes but uh, i'm interested in whether or whether you find that some students come here who are also going to maybe more traditional educational institutions and come here for something they maybe oh, can't abs- get elsewhere absolutely i started to talk about the students um we have an age spectrum that runs from probably 15 to 75. I had one ensemble here where I had a 15-year-old alto player and a 72-year-old trumpet player. <laughs> alto player is in high school, you know, just getting his wings. And the trumpet player is a 72-year-old retired airline pilot who had played trumpet 40 years ago and decided to get back to it. We have a lot of guys like that. We have a lot of hobbyists, like I say, with other professions who love the music, used to play, want to play more. Uh, we have some college students from around here who aren't getting this traditional approach at their university programs. Uh, they aren't getting the small group. Uh, you know, Art Blakey, uh, Benny Golson, Miles Davis, 50s and 60s material, they don't get a chance to play that. Uh, we have uh, people who are new in town who want to become, you know, better players and want to get known, show up here and network a little bit. That's how Evan Cobb came to us. I mean, he's a marvelous player. He didn't need to learn anything from us, but he showed up, and first thing he did was sign up for a class so he could play and people could hear him, which was, you know, that's the way to do things. Sure. Jeff Hall, great vocalist, did the same thing. Uh, Jeff's a great drummer. He's a great arranger. He writes all of his own charts. Uh, Great singer. And... um, he just came in, signed up for a vocal class. Didn't say anything to us about what he could do or what he had done. Or so he's sitting in class, and we're playing standards for people. And it comes time for Jeff to get up and sing his first tune, and he stands up and just kills everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I said, "What are you doing? Sign up for?" Well, I just want to meet everybody. I just want to find out what's going on. So that's the way things gravitate here. That's fantastic. Yeah. We're uh, we're sitting in this amazing library, which uh, has one entire wall covered with CDs, uh, another wall that is uh, LPs and books about jazz and sheet music, and there's uh, a beautiful television. I came in here the other day for the before the jam session, and people were um, watching a, a jazz performance uh, on DVD. And then a whole corner of the room is a combo with a drum set and an upright bass and a beautiful uh, piano. And so as I as I look around this place, I mean, one of the questions that occurs to me is, where do you find the money these days to have 
a place like this. I mean, this facility looks like it must be somewhat costly. Well, when we moved here uh, first of 2001, we set up a not-for-profit corporation, 501c3, so people are very willing to donate. And most of this is donated. Uh, there's one guy, he'd probably be embarrassed if I mentioned it, but a guy named Mark Edwards, who's probably Nashville's biggest jazz fan and aficionado, you know. I actually met Mark. He was sitting in this room oh, when I came cool. in, yeah. He donated 5,000 CDs. That's amazing. From his personal collection. He was running out of space in his house. <laughs> and he figured, well, you know, if I put them over here, they'll be cataloged. I'll know where they are if I need them. People can enjoy them and learn from them. Uh, the piano was given to us by a friend of the family. Uh, one of Lori's parents' best friends passed away a few years ago, and that person's daughter donated this piano to the wow. workshop. Uh, drum companies like Mapex and Remo help us out since we're not for profit. The vinyl is my collection. Uh, the books are all donated from people. So that's how it kind of just snowballs and builds. And what does it cost for students to take lessons here? Um, a class, one six week class, which meets once a week for two hours, is $200. And we get some help, uh, grant money from Nashville. Uh, uh, Metropolitan Arts Commission and the Tennessee Arts Commission. So there's some grant money there. We do a huge fundraiser every year that we call Jazz Mania, where we have like a big auction and a uh, fairly good priced ticket and food and three you know live bands play. Uh, we do an annual campaign by mail in, in the spring. And between all that and the tuition, we we make it work. Can you talk about you've now had uh, had about 10 years, a little more than 10 years with this experiment, and I'm wondering if you look around the Nashville jazz scene and you can chart some changes that you think you can tie back to the existence of the workshop. Um, <coughs> Actually, I'd like to see more of that. <laughs> uh, we've been hoping that you know some club owners or restaurant owners might see how successful what we're doing is and how popular music is and uh, refine or build their programs with a little more jazz. But one of the battles we've been fighting in uh, Music City is that there are so many people here willing to play for so little money to be discovered, it's really hard to get a paying gig in this town. Uh, The fact that the great musicians in town have a place to play and teach and learn is probably the, the biggest thing. I would like to have seen that rub off a little more on the community. And uh, uh, we we file union contracts and pay above scale on everything and pay pension bumps because I'm an old, you know, <laughs> uh, working union dog type. That's just the way I want to do things. So uh, Jamie Abersold, the great jazz educator up in Louisville, sent me an email a while back about how the jazz musicians in New York are trying to get the clubs up there to pay the pension bumps for their performances so they'll have something at the end of their careers. And he said, yeah, you guys need to support this. You need to, you know, write your congressman or whatever it is and, you know, sign the petition. So I sent him back a letter saying, well, you know, we file union contracts and we've been paying pension for 10 years. So I sent him a letter. He asked for a letter from me regarding that talking about how much we have paid into the fund and I looked at it we've paid over $5,000 into the pension fund what makes 
someone like you who has had a you know great career as an instrumentalist want to take on all of the the kind of administrative burden and I mean what must be a a fairly heavy task I mean I met the I think I've met the entire staff here except for Lori I met Graham and I I met Laurel and I met some folks who volunteer here and uh, it just seems like a a few of you really lifting this very this very heavy object what makes you guys want to do this that's a really good question and uh, you know I'm sure there's an element of the love for the music. There's certainly an element of we need a place to be able to play this music. And, it, you know, you've seen the cave, so we patterned it after, you know, some of our favorite places we've played and been, you know, uh, Vanguard in New York. There's a lot of Vanguard in that room. There's a lot of the old Dantes from L.A. Are you old enough to remember Dantes? Uh, I'm, I remember it, although I was never there. Either. Yeah. Uh, Carmelo's and some of the great rooms I played when I was out there in the 70s and the 80s. Um, you know, I could talk about the the love of the music and the, my dedication to teaching and sharing, and that's all there, but, you know, there's also an element, too, of I need a gig. Sure. <laughs> that's you know, pragmatic and honest about it. You know, this also affords us a living to do this, and one of the things... We deal with all the time is the fact that probably Lori and I do the work of two or three people each. <laughs> you know, I, I wear lots of hats, and you know, when I was studying with Dave Baker at Indiana, he never mentioned having to use QuickBooks, and well, it didn't exist for <laughs> right, exactly. or you know, do the accounting or applying for grants or you know, five hundred one c three charitable solicitations letters, and you know, he was all about the music, which is cool. But you know, you get out in the real world, and I like to tell people here that. When I was in college, there were two things I never wanted to do. Uh, one was teach, and the other was run a jazz club. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well done, sir. Here I am. <laughs> yes, you've managed to do it exactly. Uh, this is always a difficult question to ask anybody, but as we, as we draw toward the close here, are there, are there any kind of uh, particular moments that stand out to you so far in the Nashville Jazz Workshop a couple times that you just think, oh, this is why we're, this is why we're doing this. This is what this is about. It actually happens a lot. Uh, for my own gratification, it happens when I get a chance to play with major artists on this stage here, like when Tamir Hindelman hired uh, Marcus and I. Hindelman's music is not easy. It is not. <laughs> he wrote all that for John Clayton, so I had to practice for six weeks to be able to play that stuff. <laughs> um, we had Oscar Castro Nevis here for a three-day weekend, and Larry and I both love Brazilian music, so we were absolutely in heaven to have him here on our stage. We had Marvin Stam here for a three-day weekend, and you cannot find a better, more lyrical trumpet player than Marvin. And a sweetheart of a man, and just a wonderful time. We've had Houston Person, Ed Thigpen, uh, Mark Levine, Roy McCurdy's an old buddy from L.A. He came out and did a weekend with us. Those kind of moments are personally gratifying. On the other side of it... um, when I'm not playing and I'm just standing in the back of the room and there's a stage full of local pros in a setting that's not available anywhere else in town because it is a listening room, we ask people to turn off the cell phones, keep the talking to a minimum, and pay attention to the music. And, you know, they're having a great time playing for people who are having a great time listening to it. Sometimes I stand at the back of the room and go, I can't believe, you know, we've allowed this to happen. <laughs> and the other thing is, the student groups, when you give them something that's a little beyond, you know, a little over their heads, and they dig in and spend the six weeks 
woodshedding and you know rehearsing and tweaking and uh, and then they get on the stage and hit the ball out of the park. It really makes it all worthwhile. Finally, let me ask you, uh, taking off your administrator and jazz club runner hat, uh, just to talk about you as a as a bassist. Uh, you're also still very active doing that. We talk about uh, what you're up to these days. Yeah, uh, I've been a member of the BG Adair Trio, and you know BG's been here for forty plus years. She's from Kentucky, and she's just a superb musician. I like to say she knows the American songbook from the inside out. So when I first moved to town, I was real happy to find her, and she was real happy to find me, because I'd spent you know that fifteen years out in Los Angeles playing with great pianists. I was part of the Paige Cavanaugh Trio for years. I played with uh, Pete Jolly, George Gaffney, Ross Tompkins. I can't remember all of them. Just the local L.A. guys. Sure. And I learned a lot of great tunes from them, jazz tunes, standards. And when I moved to town, she kind of was amazed to find somebody that knew all the tunes she knew, and I didn't have to have the real book up there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there's just not that much playing. We play once a week at F. Scott's. And uh, it's a nice little gig. It's been real good for us in that, you know, the trio actually gets to play a three-hour gig once a week. Uh, Sometimes a little noisy. It's not really a listening room, but, you know, we do what we need to to (laughs) to get through the thing. (laughs) Then we do the Fridays here, and I play a lot of those, and Lori plays a lot of those. And we do the Jazz on the Move series, which is uh, educational performances at the Frist Art Museum. In the spring, we do one of those a month on a Sunday. And we've expanded that series to include some in the fall. Other than that, it's a little bit of recording and a few other gigs here and there. So there's not as much playing as I'd like there to be. And that's why I'd like somebody to step up and really do a five or six night a week jazz venue in town. Yeah, it's well. I, all I can say is uh, I'm I'm completely amazed by by what you've done here. My guest is Roger Spencer, uh, co-founder of the Nashville Jazz Workshop. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it. You're welcome. My thanks to the Nashville Jazz Workshop for uh, hosting my poetry reading and being willing to talk about uh, what they do on the jazz session. Thanks also to Evan Cobb, who made all that possible. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi. Please do become a member of the show at thejazzsession.com slash join or support the tour at thejazzsession.com slash tour. Follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane and then get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.